Good morning, everyone. Uh, two readings today. The first reading from Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of, out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and self to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has years, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Second reading, Isaiah chapter 29. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will beseech Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar half. I will encame against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will be mumbled out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your enemies will become like fine dust. The ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and the fortress and beseech her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night. As when a hungry person dreams of eating, but awakens hungry still. As when a thirsty person dreams of drinking, but awakens faint and thirsty still. So would it be the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, Read this, please, they will answer, I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, Read this, please, they will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth 
and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been told. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to the who... Those, well, woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the porter were thought to be like the clay. Shall, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the port say to the porter, you know nothing? In a very short time, Will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and a fertile field seem like the forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down, those who with a word make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the descendants of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will, they will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in their spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instructions. Thank you, Pung. Good morning. If I haven't met you before, I'm Darren. Um, I'm the husband that Sally was talking about, so hopefully what you hear this morning is, is more than just blah, blah, blah. But we'll see how we go. Just over eight years ago, um, Sally and I and our kids moved down to Adelaide and we moved into the house that would become our home. Now, the previous owners had done quite a bit of work to prepare the house for sale, and the garden, while not award-winning by any stretch of the imagination, was neat and tidy and relatively weed-free. Sadly, it seems that gardens don't look after themselves and certainly don't look after themselves in the way I'd like them to. And um, neither Sally nor I have very green thumbs. In order to save any embarrassment, I don't have any photos of the garden as it is today. And I have to say that eight years have taken their toll, eight years of neglect. Weeds have grown everywhere. Plants that were small and contained are now large and rambly. And trees and bushes that used to be so well behaved have now turned on each other as they vie for available space. And frankly, I'm at the point where the only path I can see to be able to restore my garden to its former glory is through the judicious use of a flamethrower or possibly a surgical nuclear strike. In the passage we, read, we just read in Isaiah, we see the effect of years of neglect 
in the spiritual lives of those living in Jerusalem and how God plans to deal with them. The chapter begins with a cry of lament and warning. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. Now, I guess the first question we have to ask is, who or what is Ariel? It's not the Little Mermaid. It's identified as the city where David settled. So Isaiah is using it as a name for Jerusalem. Now, the word in Hebrew actually appears four times in these first two verses. The fourth occurrence has been translated in all our English Bibles at the end as altar half. So it's a play on words. The people of Jerusalem view their city, and particularly the temple, as the place where offerings and sacrifices are made to God. It's their altar half. Isaiah makes reference to the cycle of festivals. Uh, The Israelites have continued to offer sacrifices and celebrate the required festivals to God. But as we'll see later, these have just become pro forma events. They're, They're hollow acts done as a way to tick boxes. And the festivals have lost their true meaning as far as the people are concerned. Because of this, Isaiah says, God will take Ariel, Jerusalem's altar half, and make it his own Ariel when the nation itself becomes a sacrifice. And just as David besieged Jerusalem many years before when he captured the city from the Jebusites, now God himself will besiege Jerusalem. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will become ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. God is stating his intention to bring destruction upon Jerusalem. And while he'll use the Assyrians and later the Babylonians to achieve this, they're just the tools that God will use. No mention is made here of, the na- of these nations. It's God himself who will lay siege against Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but that feels a little unsettling. Further down we read, starting at verse 9, Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, who are the prophets. He has covered your heads, who are the seers. What Isaiah seems to be saying is that God himself has closed the people's eyes and ears so that they can't see his warnings or hear his message, and then he'll punish them for it. But is that what's actually happening? Is God some cruel despot who's made his people, who are completely innocent of all wrongdoing, to reject him, so that he can destroy them. I hope it won't come as too much of a surprise if I say I don't think that's what's going on. Let's take a look at God's actual complaint against those in Jerusalem in verse 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now we generally view the heart as the seat of our emotions and affections. I will love you from the bottom of my heart. But for the ancient Hebrews, the emotions and affections were more the purview of the gut or the soul. For the ancient writers, the heart is the seat of our thinking 
of our attitudes, of how we make decisions, what we'd probably more put in the mind. God's complaint here isn't that the Israelites weren't emotional enough, that they weren't crying over their sacrifices enough. It's that although they went through the motions of sacrifice, in the end, that had very little impact on the way they lived their lives. Verse 13 continues, Their worship of me is based on merely uh, human rules that they have been taught. Their worship had become a purely cultural expression. It was something they did each Sabbath and for the prescribed festivals each year. But apart from that, their understanding and love of God didn't filter down to the way they lived their lives. They thought they knew where life was heading because in their opinion, they were doing all the right things as far as God was concerned. And the rest of the time, they were in control of their own destinies. But the fact is, they couldn't see the reality of the situation. As Isaiah put it, it's like they were blind or drunk. And he says, for you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. If you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this please, they'll say, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, they'll answer, I don't know how to read. The people of Jerusalem were unable to see where their actions would lead. They were deaf and blind to what God was saying. And while they might have thought they knew what they were doing, the reality is they didn't have any idea where their actions would lead. They thought they could outfox God. Verse 15, Woe to you who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? As we've heard over these last few weeks, Judah is currently caught between two superpower nations. They're seeing the threat of Assyria come towards them from the north. And so they're in secret negotiations with Egypt to form an alliance to defend themselves against it. I say they're secret negotiations, but of course God knows what's going on. But the leaders in Jerusalem, through their own wisdom, have tried to pull the wool over God's eyes. They go through the motions of worship and sacrifice, but in reality are relying on Egypt to save them. Which is somewhat ironic, since Israel as a nation was born when God saved them from Egypt. But they think they're the ones in charge, that their plans are somehow hidden from God. As Stephen showed us very well before, you turn things up down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? They thought that their attendance to sacrifices and festivals would keep God on their side, would keep God in their pocket for when they needed him. Instead of submitting their ways to God and living life under him, they thought that they themselves were able to determine what's good and right. And in their arrogance, they rejected their creator as small and insignificant. And as Stephen pointed out a couple of weeks ago, rejecting God's wisdom and standing in opposition to God can only lead to failure. What we see in this passage is not God making his innocent people to reject him so that he can punish them but an infinitely wise creator seeing his creation turn away from him and follow their own human wisdom 
and choose a path that God knows will lead to their ultimate ruin. And while God is incredibly patient and gives plenty of opportunities for the people to change their ways and return to him, in the end, as a righteous God, he cannot ignore this rejection. And as a loving God, he cannot let them continue to reject him because he knows where it will lead. Theologians sometimes describe God as a simple being. That doesn't mean he's unintelligent, but it means that What God is, he is completely and all the time. So God is righteous and just, and he's completely righteous and just all the time. God is also loving, and he is completely loving all the time. It's not like sometimes he's he's acting in judgment, sometimes he's acting in love. He is justice and love all the time. God's choice to bring suffering and destruction against Jerusalem is not a choice made in spite or retribution, but a choice made in perfect righteousness and in perfect love. It's kind of like me and my garden. If I want to restore my garden to something beautiful, the first thing I need to do is a work of destruction. But that destructive work, the work of cutting down and uprooting and digging out, wouldn't be a a work of hatred or rebellion or retribution against the garden, but a work of love, knowing that that's the only way that my garden's beauty can be restored. God knows that the only way for his chosen people to return to him is through drastic and seemingly destructive action. Now, it's worth pointing out, there there are a couple of big differences between my garden analogy and what's happening in Isaiah. First, my garden's current condition is due to my neglect, not its own. In Jerusalem's case, it was their own neglect that had left them, in a spiritual sense, full of weeds and unhealthy. The second difference is that while my methods of dealing with my garden may vary from my default of do-nothing to an overly heavy-handed, tear-everything-out-start-again approach. God isn't like that. As we heard from Mark last week in chapter 28 of Isaiah, God will use the most appropriate method to deal with his people. No more and no less. If sending in the Assyrians seems heavy-handed, it's because God, in his infinite wisdom and love, knows that that's what's necessary uh, to, to restore people in Jerusalem to, to relationship with himself. And God has a plan for their restoration. Look at what Isaiah says in verse 5. But your, enemy, your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly in an instant the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is in a dream with a vision in the night, as when a hungry person dreams of eating but awakens hungry still, as when a thirsty person dreams of drinking but awakens faint and thirsty still. So will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. While God is the one who will bring Jerusalem's downfall, He's also the one that will bring their salvation. 
Now this promise of salvation is really important. So imagine the situation. Assyria is threatening to destroy Jerusalem. To avoid this, leaders in Jerusalem are trying to set up an alliance with Egypt to keep them safe. But they know that any alliance they make with Egypt will end up with Jerusalem being vassals to Egypt. They'll live in servitude. Either way, this isn't going to end well for Jerusalem. So if God's just going to come in and destroy Jerusalem, how is that any different to the situation they're currently in? It's no better and it may be worse. Except, except that God has a plan and promises to save them. It's like his plan comes in two phases. Step one, destruction and tearing down. Step two, salvation and rebuilding. I'm sure that those in Jerusalem would have been quite happy for God to skip step one, go straight on to step two. But that, that's kind of like me going out and planting a beautiful rose bush in the middle of my garden. Not only would the beauty of the rose bush be swallowed up by the mess around it, but the rose bush itself would become corrupted by the weeds and the poor condition of the soil. If God simply destroyed Assyria, that would just like justifying Jerusalem's rejection of God. They, they'd just be able to continue with their, their lip service to God as a cultural practice, but it wouldn't improve their spiritual condition before God. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. After I finished high school, I studied electrical engineering at uni. And as I finished my degree, I started looking for jobs. After, I don't know, 100 applications and rejections over 18 months, I was still no closer to getting employment. And I spoke to an older friend of mine who was a minister, explained to him what had happened and said, look, you know, I'm only after one, God, one job. Surely God can give me that. Why am I still in this situation? And he said to me, maybe God is teaching you to trust him in the hard times so that you'll trust him in the good times. It always stuck with me. We know that God provides all our needs. We know that. The Bible tells us that God, that God will provide all our needs. It's just that sometimes what God knows we need is different to what we think we need. I thought I needed a job. God knew that I needed to learn to trust him. The leaders in Jerusalem thought that they needed saving from Assyria. God knew that they needed saving from their own spiritual barrenness. In our passage from Revelation this morning, Jesus addresses the church in Laodicea. Their problem wasn't that they had rejected Christ outright. It's that their acknowledgement and worship of Christ made no difference in their lives. They were lukewarm in their faith and commitment to Christ. Just as with the leaders in Jerusalem, they were blind. See what he says. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, bl poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. 
He continues in verse 19 with the same idea we saw in Hebrews just then. Those who are love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. This afternoon our church musicians are meeting for some training and in preparing for this I've been reading a book called Worship Matters by Bob Coughlin from Sovereign Grace Ministries. There's so much good stuff in this book. Uh, but one quote has really challenged me. It's, it's a long quote, but I want to read it in full because the questions he asks at the end get right to what we're talking about this morning. He says, God wants us to love him more than our instruments and music, more than our possessions, food and ministry, more than our wife and children, more than our own lives. That doesn't mean we can't love anything else or that we shouldn't love anything else. But we can't love anything in the right way unless we love God more. Our desires will be out of whack. We'll look to temporary pleasures like concerts, video games and sports to fulfill eternal desires. We'll love things that aren't as worthy as God to be loved. Then he asks these questions. How do I know what I love the most? By looking at my life outside of Sunday morning. What do I enjoy the most? What do I spend the most time doing? Where does my mind drift to when I don't have anything to do? What am I passionate about? What do I spend my money on? What makes me angry when I don't get it? What do I feel depressed about? What do I fear losing the most? The question is well worth pondering and if we look at them honestly, the questions, the answers will reveal to us who or what our God or gods are. But know this, that even when we neglect our relationship with God, he will never reject us. His heart will keep calling to ours, calling us to return. Out of his love for us, he may bring times of hardship in order to turn us back to him. But because of his infinite wisdom and love, they'll never be beyond what's required to bring us to that place of restoration. Next week we'll be launching our church year. And I expect that our church vision will be part of that launch. For anyone new to the church or if you've forgotten what our church vision is, it's pretty simple. Love God, love God's people, lead people to Jesus. But the reality is it's even simpler than that. If we truly love God and if we come near to God with our mouths, honour him with our lips and bring our hearts to him, allowing our love for God and faith in Christ to change our thinking, our attitudes and our decisions, the way we make our decisions, then we will love God's people and we will lead people to Christ. But if our worship of God is merely lip service and Sunday has no effect on the other six days of the week, it's unlikely to result in love amongst God's people or seeing people come to Christ. There's something that we need to learn from the time of spent in Isaiah. We need to take our faith seriously. Who or what do you worship? Is your faith in God lukewarm? When God finishes his work of destruction and restoration, he says this. Therefore, this is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the descendants of Jacob. 
No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale when they see among their children, among their children, the work of my hands. They will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you love us just as we are, but that you love us too much to leave us the way we are. In your mercy, grant us all a fresh vision of your son, Jesus, the one who gave his life at the place where perfect justice and perfect love meet on the cross because he knew it was the only way that we could be rescued from our lives of spiritual neglect and restored to right relationship with God and with each other. Challenge our complacency. Be with us through the hard times and bring us to the place where we will stand in awe before you, our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name we pray.